Take your Bibles, please, and join me as we head over to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, if you were with us on Christmas Eve, we spent some time talking about Jesus Christ and some of the proofs of why he is the one that we adore, why he is Emmanuel, God with us. I want to continue with that whole story, that saga of the seven scenes of Christmas, and pick up one that is very, very familiar, but dealing with some of those who pointed out who Jesus Christ was. We just lost our screens. Um, the story that I want to focus on this morning is that of the wise men, that account that many of you are familiar with. Those are the individuals that the story you know so well, and yet in that story of the wise men, it is one of those accounts that has a lot of misinformation, misunderstanding, and there's some good lessons there. So what I want to do is talk about it because it's so appropriate. I thought we would do it after Christmas, which is only a couple days ago, but since they came after Christmas, let's talk about them here this morning in Matthew chapter 2, if you follow along in their story, do you follow as I read? Matthew 2, starting with verse 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews, that we may, for we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him? When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. They said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. There's a lot of details about these people that gets a lot of confusion. Some say, say this. You know, when we ask how many wise men, the popular belief is what? There was three, okay? And we know and understand that that comes from the idea of the gold, frankincense, and myrrh tradition that talks about the idea of the three different names. We understand the song has made, made it popular, but the bottom line is we don't know how many there were. There was more than two, That's all, or two or more. That's all we know, wise men, plural. With some ask this question, uh, the idea of where did they come from? This one's really interesting, and I thoroughly enjoyed doing some study along this idea. We read in the scriptures they came from the east. Now, some say all the way as far as India or China, as far as that far Orient. But if we were living in Jerusalem at the time or in the Middle East at the time that Christ was born, anything east of us could include the areas right next door, the ancient Babylon, the ancient Persia, those part, parts of the world. And that makes sense because in those parts of the world, that's where Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and other men, even Jewish men, were taken and were developed as wise men, as those who became scholars, who were trained in philosophies, science, math, medicines, politics. And one of the training that all those 
those young men had to have, such as Daniel and others, they had to be well versed in world religions. So they would have known about Judaism. They would have known about that idea of the Old Testament, the scriptures, especially since the Septuagint had become very popularized over the last few decades and was being spread abroad. If we look and say, okay, it is ancient Babylon, Persia, that area of the world, it's interesting to note that the Magi, and they were commonly called that, people who were involved with politics, religion, from that part of the world, Magi who in the ancient past, they had been political peoples. They had been advisors to kings. They were individuals who were royal officers, as we read in the book of Esther. We know that in that region of the world, there was an entire group that developed over a period of time. The title we give you, Magistanis, the idea is almost like they were the Senate. They were a political party, a political group of people who were also religious in some of their background. But at the time when we come before Jesus was born in those last century or so before that and up to the time of Christ, there was this group that was extremely influential even in Persia and following that said that nobody could become the king unless they gave their approval, that they would crown even the successor, the son of a previous king. This group had to say, yes, we approve, before they became king. So they were called kingmakers in some of the ancient writings. Plus, they were also very important. They were the ones who set up all the judges. They set up the laws and the judges and the judicial system. And so we have that, tar- uh, that part of those people from that region. But we also know from the New Testament, some of them who were including themselves with official governors and politics in different regions of the world, they also got into black magic. We go to the book of Acts, and we find Simon the Sorcerer is what our English says in the original language. It's the same word, magi. That Simon the Magi used sorcery, bewitched the people of Samaria, and promoted himself to be one who was ruling over, influencing, and being involved with the politics. Well, when Peter came, Peter says, your heart is not right in the sight of God. This is the individual that when he saw the Holy Spirit being distributed upon believers, he thought if he paid money, he could have that same power. Well, there's another guy who shows up later on in the book of Acts. He's Elimus the sorcerer, same word, Magi, was a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus. He was with the deputy of the the country. So he, again, associated with the political leaders of that region, and he was opposing himself to Paul and Barnabas in their ministry because they were starting to influence the deputy to become a believer, and he wanted them to stop. And so Peter, Paul responds and says, Thou child of the devil, thou enemy of righteousness. So not all of the wise men were what we would call believers. They were practicing, some of them, some of the dark arts, but they would be political, they would be religious, they were actively involved with things that were going on at the time. And obviously, from Daniel's influence, if again we're in that region of ancient Babylon, Persia, if that's where they came from, Daniel would have exposed them to Judaism. Daniel would have had told them and taught them even some of the the ideas of his religious background. And it's interesting, around 300 B.C., in that region, right next to what we call Palestine today, a region that politically at that time it was called Parthia, and that area of the world, right around 300, the Magi developed, some of them developed a religious philosophy that changed from what they used to believe. A number of them developed a group that was very monotheistic, one God. 
Now, in the ancient world, that was rare, extremely rare. The Jews were one of the few isolated groups that believed in one God. Everybody else was polytheistic. But some of these magi adopted that idea of one God and one God only. That same group also adopted the idea of a priestly lineage within their, their group that it would be a successive generation of a priestly line, and they had to have fit certain qualifications. Their bodies couldn't have impairments. They couldn't have diseases. And that same group adopted, which was extremely unusual as well, a blood sacrifice for forgiveness of sins. There was a lot of parallels that all of a sudden showed up in around that 300 amongst the Magi, similar to Judaism which gets a lot of scholars to think they were adopting. They were familiar with a lot of that information. So so whatever it was, okay, the the Magi, if they were from that region, it would make sense that they would come and worship Christ because they were monotheistic, they were exposed to those ideas. To give you the political background, without boring you too much, Roman Empire at the time of the birth of Christ, right next to us, the Parthian Empire. And what was happening right around that time period... uh, from about you know, 100 all the way up to the birth of Christ, there were several wars between these empires. And they were quite vicious. And what happened is Augustus Caesar signed a treaty, though his, his, a lot of the Senate didn't want it. He signed a treaty that uh, was going to be a long-lasting treaty for 20, at 20 B.C. between him and the Parthians. But it was a very uneasy treaty because it wasn't fully supported on either side. But the kings, the emperor, signed this treaty. And what happened about the time that Christ comes, there's a king in Parthia who is extremely unpopular. And he is, he is really pro this treaty, and he is also very cruel to his own people. So those magi, that political group, religious group magi, what they did is they stripped him of all of his power. They deposed him, though he still had the crown. He was basically a lame duck president at that moment for a few years. And finally, some of his family, family members took him out. They killed him, and part of that was his wife and son. And so at the time of Christ, okay, Christ being born around 4 or 6 B.C., understand that Parthia and Rome, they have an uneasy treaty. Their, their king over here in Parthia, he, they're looking for a new king. And it would be the Magi who would be doing the looking for the new king because they were kingmakers. And so when all of a sudden you get that scene where they show up in Jerusalem and they're looking for a king... There's a, lot of, there's a lot of political tension going on. And what strikes me odd is Herod brings these guys into his presence right away. They must have had some influence. They must have been somebody of political clout that Herod would even bring them to the palace to talk with them. And then when they tell him we're looking for a king, the king of the Jews, Herod doesn't rebuke him. Understand, Herod at this moment in his life, towards the very end, was killing people. His own sons, some of his wives, even some of the Jewish people, he had them killed off. Anybody who threatened his rule... But he didn't do it with these guys. He didn't rebuke them. Somehow, some reason, these guys have influence over Herod that he is going to help them and not attack them. 
And it could very well be, if they were from Parthia right next door, understand that they were a very powerful class. They would be well-known, and they would have done ambassadorships. They would have done the political going maneuverings. So he knows these are influential people. As well, he knows that we're, I'm living on the border. If we go back to that map, where he is, he's on the border between these two empires. They have a very uneasy treaty between them. The first place to get attacked if there's a war is going to be right in their backyard. Herod's backyard. And Herod doesn't want to cause any problems, nor does he want to offend Caesar Augustus, who made this treaty, because Herod wants one of his sons to be approved as the next king. And so there's a lot of this political um, maneuvering that's going on at the same time. And so it's interesting that they would come and they would seek for a king, and maybe he is more than happy to just just console them for a period of time. But he has, as we know, all kinds of ambitions to kill Christ, but not to handle, not to do harm to the wise men because of their political clout. All that is just very interesting that these guys were obviously exposed to Old Testament teachings, that they're coming. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a few moments. Where and when did they show up? You all know this if you've studied the Bible at all. History, tradition is always portrayed that they come to the manger where Jesus is, is in, in that manger, in that barn. And we all know that's not true. They come into a house, according to the passage you just read. They come not when he's a baby, but now he is called a young child. Totally different terms. And we know that Herod killed up to two years of age. So Jesus is a toddler by this time. Mary and Joseph have resettled. They are living in a house somewhere in Bethlehem and that's when the wise men show up. And so we also know that when there's that questions about where's the star? What is the star? Is it the same thing that just happened over the last couple weeks that we were able to see? One of those conjunction of planets that shows up every 800 years. That was suggested by a number of people. A number of people say no, this was a comet that moved across the sky or it was that conjunction of planets or it was a star going supernova or some would say it was some type of supernatural star because it moves east to west and then it moves north to south uh, to Bethlehem. I'm going to suggest this as another possibility, that it's very similar to that, but if you go back to the wording of it, the word that's used for the star in the original is astra or astra, which means blazing light. When you compare that with other passages of scripture, you have that same type of an idea of an astra or an astra when it talks in the Old Testament about the Shekinah glory. The appearance of God, such as the pillar of fire, it is called an aster or an astra back in the Greek version of the Old Testament. When they have in a situation where Paul is all of a sudden blinded by that light from heaven, it's an aster, a supernatural light seeing the brilliance of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ is described in the book of Revelation that he is brilliant, his face is shining, it is the same word that has that idea, a connotation of the word that astra, 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 aster word, that that's that brilliant shining. When it talks about that the angels of the Lord appeared to the shepherds and round about them shone the glory of the Lord, that is that similarity to that Shekinah glory, that brilliance of God, that aster. I would suggest to you that there's very good possibility that even like that pillar of fire was low to the ground and it moved and gave direction, that this was a star of, of uh, an expression of God's glory that was enough that it could move across the sky at a distance or low enough that it could be right over the very place where Jesus was. Not this star that was millions of miles in the sky, but rather it was right over the very house, being what we would call the Shekinah glory, the appearance 
of the Lord that showed up in the Old Testament times to Moses, to the temple peoples, whatever. So we have all these different ideas, but here's where we want to focus for the next few minutes. The story of the wise men is fascinating, has details, but what it displays for us is what makes up a wise person. What is a real wise man? And we have those cliche phrases that say the wise men still seek him or be a wise person. I'm going to suggest to you that you should do that. You should become a wise person. And some of you, that just means because you already are, a step further. Grow in your wisdom in 2021. And just stop and spend some time with me this week, next week, looking at the characteristics, the traits of what marks a wise person and try to see, am I that type of person? Or what can I do to become a wiser person in the next year? Let me give you several traits this morning. Number one, here's what it would involve. It would involve making it your personal goal to worship Christ. Make it your personal goal to worship Christ. We read the story already where the wise men came in and they say, we seek to worship Christ. We read that when they found him in the house, they came in and they worshiped him. Their motivation, their drive was to worship Jesus Christ, to magnify him, to give him glory. That makes perfect sense because in the book of Revelation, it talks about why we were created, why every single one of us exists, that we are, it says, God says, uh, the Bible says, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. Why? For your pleasure, for your glory, to bring honor to you. That same idea in 1 Corinthians talks about whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Our existence, our reason for being here is to bring glory to Jesus Christ. Not to just make money, not just to do our own thing or to have fun, and there's nothing wrong with those things, but our ultimate purpose for existence is to bring glory to God. To the point that the wise men said, we are going to do this even if it means we've got to travel a long distance to worship Him, to bring glory to Him, to praise Him, to bow down before Him, to publicly express our appreciation for Him, even if it requires great effort, which we'll talk about in a few moments. But in 2021, realize that there are some individuals that say, we're going to talk about Jesus, we're going to talk about Christmas, we're going to get days off, and we're going to celebrate, but we're going to forget all about him, and we're not going to put any great effort into worshiping him on a Lord's Day, or any such thing. For some people, it's great effort, it's too far to even go 15 minutes down the road to worship in a church. There's, it's, for some people, it's too hard to just pick up your Bible and to pray on a daily basis because it's too much effort, not if you're a wise person. If you're going to say, I'm going to develop and work at being a wiser person, I'm going to take time for corporate worship. I'm going to take time to get involved with personal worship on a regular daily basis because this is why I'm here. I'm here to bring glory to God. Can I suggest something else about this idea of, of worshiping Him? That you and I should not only talk about public worship, but we should make it a priority at school, at work, that this year, the way we work, we're going to put our best effort in so as to bring glory to Jesus Christ, so as to adorn the gospel. What about this? What about glorifying God in your speech? Sit back, evaluate, look, and say, how do I better glorify Christ in my speech? What words may I, may I get out of my vocabulary? What words should I put into my vocabulary? Maybe I should start curbing my reactions and the words I say when I'm really frustrated, when I'm driving and somebody cuts me off, when I stub my toe. 
how do I glorify Christ with my speech? Maybe for some of you, it's going to stop. It would mean stop and let's evaluate. What about our music? What about our entertainment? What about what we read? What about what we do on the computer? How do I better glorify Christ? What about what we handle our finances? And how we give and how we're showing charity. What can I do to better glorify Christ? How do I grow in this area? That is one area that says about the, being a wiser person is figure out how you glorify Christ on a better basis. Number two, respond, accept and respond to the revelation you've been given. Accept and respond to the revelation you've been given. Now, we've mentioned that these wise men probably got their information, their revelation from people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, who had taken Scripture with them, and obviously they were living by it, and they would have shared it with those other religious scholars, people who were uh, in investigating all types of religions. We know this from what these men said when they come to Herod. We know that they accepted for instance, the book of Daniel and other prophecies. We read in the book of Daniel, know therefore that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, Daniel was reading uh, Jeremiah at this time. He was reading the passages that talk about the Jews being outside the land for 70 years and being able to go back in the land. And, as, and when Daniel is reading that, he has questions, which prompted an entire explosion of revelation about future events. Future events that we're going to talk about in January, February, March as we get into a series on end times. But here's what they're reading, you know, he was reading, and surely he would have shared this with those men, that there's a commandment to the idea of when you rebuild Jerusalem unto the Messiah. And God was giving some of the, dead, uh, some of the key dates and saying that from the time that the Jews can go back and rebuild unto the coming of a Messiah. They're talking about Messiah when they come to Herod. They believe. They've read some things, whether it's Daniel or other, about a Messiah who's coming. They also read this, that after 62 weeks uh, shall Messiah be sacrificed, be killed, not for something he has done, but be sacrificed for the benefit of other people. So they read that. They're impressed by that, that there's this person who's coming who is going to be unusual. He's going to be a man from heaven. He's going to give his life. And then they could have read other prophecies. Maybe they, maybe they read the prophecies more about that Messiah, how he would have an unusual birth, being born into the human race. Maybe they read Isaiah. The Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive, bear a son. You will call him God with us, Emmanuel. And they're reading these things, and they're saying there's a Messiah coming. He's going to be born of a human race. They're reading some of the Old Testament prophecies and understanding he's a Jew. Which, by the way, a Gentile would not come and bow down to a Jew at that time. They wouldn't have to. They're nobles. They're, they're of the upper crust. They're the kingmakers. And they come and they bow down to this child who's located in a normal house. And they think he's the king of the Jews. And as a king of the Jews... Being of the Jewish religion, they've come to worship him? Where did they get all this idea? Reading the Old Testament scriptures. That there's going to be a king amongst the Jews, born amongst the Jews, who will be a universal king one day, take over the entire world, and that's going to be their king that they should worship. And they get all of this, and they put it together. They're accepting what revelation they have. And it's making an impact upon their life. What about you? What about the revelation you have? And again, I remind you that many people, they believe that there was a Jesus. He's a historical figure. They're glad that he came because they get vacation. They get off work. We get to do Christmas stuff. 
But what about what the Bible says about Jesus? What about beyond what we think? What about, what about the, the Bible telling us that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh? He is Messiah, that he was perfect, he was sinless, he was in heaven, he was our creator. That Jesus is Lord and designer, that he is the one we're going to give account to, the one we're going to answer to. All that's in the Bible. Do you accept that? Do you accept the fact that one day you're going to have to stand before Jesus Christ and give account of your life? That's what the Bible says. And it's one thing to say, yeah, it's another thing to accept it and respond accordingly. Do you accept and respond what the Bible says about you? What it says about me? It says, for all have sin and come short of the glory of the standard of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Are you willing to accept what the Bible says? What revelation you understand or have heard? Now again, we may not fully understand every aspect of the Bible. That we're constantly learning. But what you've been exposed to, what you've heard, what you know is real. What you see by your life experience on top of the Bible. That there is none righteous. That all of us have sinned. Well, the Bible talks about that and says, Because of our sin, the wages, what we deserve for our sin is death, separation from God. The Bible talks about there's going to be a place where we will be eternally separated from God. It's called hell. And the Bible makes it clear that we deserve to go there because we're sinners. Do you accept that? Will you then respond to it to realize, to say, wait a minute, that means that I can't get to heaven. I don't deserve to get to heaven. I'm not guaranteed a place in heaven. I need a Savior. Well, that's why Jesus Christ came. The Bible makes it clear that he came to save those who are of his own. That he came to seek and to save that which was lost. That Jesus Christ came to give his life as a ransom for many. So that we can have forgiveness. Because without him we can't. We can't get it on our own. Will you accept what the Bible says about the fact that there's no works you can do that are good enough to cover your sins to get you into heaven? baptism, going to church, giving money, good looks, you know, being this, that, and the other thing, politically active and kind and charitable and community-minded, all good things. But we are saved by grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. Will you accept the facts of the Bible that says you need a Savior, that you need to call upon Christ to forgive you of your sins, that what he did is he died on the cross, paid your, for all of your sins, and now he has within his ability, since he resurrected, ascended on high, to give you the gift of complete forgiveness for everything in the past, present, and future that you do, how you offend God. And he says, I'll give you the gift of eternal life. It's a free gift. I already paid for it. I want to give it to you. If you respond with a repentant, believing heart. Well, see, that a wise person responds that way. A wise person won't reject Christ, won't reject truth, but a wise person says, you know, I don't understand it all, but I'll accept and, and respond to what I have been told. I'm going to encourage you to be wise this morning. If you do not know you're on your way to heaven, when we close with the song, Joy to the World, we're going to have one of our staff members standing over by that door. Feel free to get up while we sing, go over and say, can somebody show me the prayer I need to pray in order to go to heaven? If you're watching at home, you can, then, you can easily contact us. We'll, have, we'll get back to you. We'll come by or we'll send you information to show you what you need to do to make sure that you know you're on your way to heaven. You need to call upon the Lord. 
You need to do that this day. This is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Be a wise person that you take that gift of salvation. Be a wise person when God invites every one of you to pray. Who are born again, he says, come, call unto me and I will answer thee. Accept and believe and respond accordingly. Be wise enough that when the Bible says you're to live a godly life, you're to live a pure life, you're to, to live by a life that is controlled by grace and, and kindness and love and forgiveness, but holiness and doing our best before the Lord. Live a life that the Bible talks about where you're claiming the promises of God. Will you believe the promises that he will provide your needs, that he will answer your prayers, that he is going to be with you. He will not allow you to be tempted above that you are e- able. A wise person accepts what, they, what revelation they have and they respond accordingly. Number three, a wise person, and if somebody who wants to get wiser, will personally do whatever they can to get closer to and learn more about Jesus Christ. They don't just hear about him. Like this Christmas, people have heard about Jesus. They've celebrated and they've talked about him and stuck him in, you know, maybe on the manger in their front yard or maybe, maybe on, a, on some type of ornament that they have Christ, but they've done nothing more. You want to be different. You want to be a wise person that says, well, I want to learn more about Christ. I want to get closer to him. That's what the wise men did. The wise men knew a lot about Jesus Christ, but that wasn't enough for them. They made the trip. They did the effort. They wanted to get there to learn more, to get closer to him. What will you do this year to get closer to Christ, to learn more about him? And some people, they'll understand that, you know, the gifts are great. The wise men give tremendous gifts. But part of the gift giving that makes some of the gifts so valuable, like many of the gifts you give, it's not just the price tag, it's the effort behind the gift. I told you the story about the missionary who was ministering inland at a village and the little boy wanted to give them a gift to show appreciation for them teaching the Word of God. So he went hours away to the coast to pick up a conch or some type of shell that was very unique at that certain beach and he brought it back to the missionary. It involved him going hours by himself, sleeping overnight on the road and when he came, the missionary said to him, he said, you shouldn't have done it. You shouldn't have made all that effort. And the little boy's response was, well, the effort was part of the gift. You know, that's true about us. Sometimes, and I'm I'm sure it's happened to you, you've gotten gifts, and they haven't been the best gift. It hasn't been the priciest gift. But when you look at who gave it to you and why they gave it to you and what effort that that child, for instance, put into it, it becomes priceless. Well, you and I are supposed to put effort into worshiping Christ, getting closer to Him, learning more about Him. So what that would mean if we were wise men, their effort, man, they made this long trip. It was a, it was a trip that had danger to it. It covered maybe four to 800 plus miles. It would take weeks. It would take months for them. They had to be able to have their food. They don't travel the way we travel. There isn't a toll road. They would have had to travel through the what's called in ancient times the robber's highway way. So they do all of this and, they, and it costs them a lot to outfit this group, to ride or do whatever they've done. And you know how hard it is. Some of you travel, you make a trip that's maybe 10, 16 hours or 24 hours to go someplace. And you're exhausted by the end of the time. These guys are gone for days and weeks. But it's all a part, I want to learn about Christ. I want to get closer to him. And we're going to have people out here in this next year are going to say, hey, you know, making an effort to go to church, that's just too hard. Once COVID clears up, there's going to be some that say it's, just, it's, it's too much effort. 
to get in the car and to drive, whether it be 15 minutes or 20 minutes, it's too hard. Wise people will say, I will do the effort. I will take time. I will take 15 minutes to read my Bible. It's not that much on a daily basis. I'm going to put in some effort on learning more about Christ, getting closer to Him. It's, it's not that hard to pray 10 minutes every day. I'm going to do that. I want to work at being a wiser person this year that I am going to put effort in to getting closer to Christ, to learning more about Him. In fact, let's point this out. They wanted to get closer to Christ and learn more, so they even stop and ask for directions. They even say when they come into Jerusalem, do you know, we, we, we don't know where to go. Can somebody help us out? Can somebody give us more information? Number four, wise people are open to asking for directions. Now, immediately, wives are poking husbands. Okay. In saying, hey, you don't read directions. You know, you're going to put it together without directions. Or you're going to drive without directions. We know, study says, men drive an extra 276 miles yearly because they don't ask for directions. Quote, unquote. And the wives respond, why are men so reluctant to pull over for, and ask for directions? I like his response. We're used to getting them from our wives without having to ask. Okay, okay, that, that, that's true in some cases. But here, the wise men, just, folk, let's be spiritually wise this year. Can I encourage you and challenge you to do this? Become spiritually curious. Ask questions about your Bible. Find out more. We're gonna, for instance, we're going to embark here shortly into a series on end times. Ask questions. Explore, expand, learn. Why don't you, why don't you become you know, more curious about, about things and say, hey, listen, I want to in, in increase my knowledge. Buy a commentary. Buy a book that will help you to study. Buy, if you're going to do a book study, buy something. Pick up some, and, there's, and every commentary has its weakness and its strengths. But pick up these small little books. There, you know, there's a B series by Wearsby, for instance, that you can read along with whatever Bible study book you're doing. Gromacki has some small books that you can read along. They're not heavy, overly, overly involved with the language of the original, but they'll give you something. But buy something. Help yourself to study your Bible, to learn more, to become fluent in Scripture. Why don't you do this? Why don't you say, this year I'm going to really work on being teachable. I'm going to take more opportunities. We've got so much stuff on live stream. It amazes me how much we're putting out there. View it. Watch it. Learn. Explore. Has it ever happened to you that you read the same text over and over and over, and then sometimes you read it and you find out something new? No, yes? Okay, I was thinking I'm the only one. Okay. It's even like this study. I, I've preached this stuff before. We've talked about Christmas. And almost every time you reopen up the text, there's something more there. The Bible is just this boundless, endless library of knowledge and challenge. You know, get involved with studying it, reading it, learning it, and being teachable. Get a mentor. We're doing those discipleship Bible studies. Get together with somebody and they say, hey, listen, teach me to pray. Teach me to do this. Let's help one another out. But do something in 2020 to become closer to Christ, to learn more about him than what you have. Do not, do not passively sit back and say, I know enough. We never know enough about Christ. We never know enough about the Word. There's always more for us to help us out. Let me give you one more thought here. To be a modern wise man, seek after Christ no matter what others around you do or don't do. 
If you're a wise person, you're not going to be controlled by your peers or by others around you. Here, here, let me give you what I mean by that. The wise people come into Jerusalem, and when they come, they're asking about this king of the Jews. Where is he born? They're asking citizens. They're asking Herod. Herod asked the religious leaders. So when we look at the text and we read the people's response, it does, it, it, what strikes me is this is the description how these people respond. It says, verse 3, when the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. But then when you go further in the story, like verse 8, he sent them to Bethlehem. You go and search and then I'll come. And when they heard the king, they departed. And what I'm amazed at, maybe maybe there's something there that happened that we don't know about. But the indication is a whole lot more people didn't go with them. The indication is the reaction of the people. They're troubled, but they don't go and see Christ. They don't come and worship Christ. They're like the majority of people who will celebrate Christmas, but that's it. After Christmas is done, Jesus is put back in a box and he's stored in the closet until next year. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't be influenced by by others who don't respond. And that's a challenge. This is really hard. I ask you this. You know, when others don't encourage you spiritually, do you quit? Do you stop? When, when it happens, when others tell you, don't get saved, don't get saved. If you get saved, your life's going to change. If you get saved, you know, you're going to become one of those crazy Bible bangers. Okay? You're going to become a lunatic for Jesus. Okay? And most of you aren't lunatics. Remember, I said most of you aren't lunatics. Okay? You're not those crazy fanatics. You love the Lord. You're honoring the Lord. But didn't you get some of that pressure from family too? I know when I first got saved, we, we were told, you know, you know, people in our town were told, don't do anything with the Burgraphs. If you do business with the Burgraphs, you know, you're going to die and go to hell yourself because they've got this bug of fanaticism about the Bible. You know, even if you're being discouraged from getting saved by family members, by coworkers, my friend... Let me tell you, you don't go nuts. You get a peace that passes all understanding. You get a joy that is the joy unspeakable. You get a contentment. You don't ever have any more... No, we know better than that. You're going to have problems, but you're going to have a strength you've never had before. You're going to have an encouragement you never had before. You're going to have a family like you've never had before. You're going to have the Spirit of God living within you. There is so much with Jesus Christ and coming to Him. It's just amazing that people won't do it. But people will discourage. People will make fun of your faith. People will show no interest. There's even, there's even times people will come to church like this. But they have no interest whatsoever in serving the Lord. They just show up because it's the thing to do. And they'll discourage others. Well, what do you mean? You're going to get baptized? You're, you're going to testify of Jesus Christ? Why would you do that? Don't be influenced by what others don't do or do. You follow the Lord. You do what you're supposed to do. You give Christ you know, your very best. Some will say, hey, don't witness. Don't share the gospel. And, and if you go to them, you might say, hey, would you come with me? Oh, no, I'm too busy. I'm baking bread. I have no time. Okay? No, no, you do what's right. Here's a challenge for you that's going to happen more and more is... People who stop coming to church regularly, you look around, they say they're not there. Well, maybe I shouldn't go either. No, you do it. You do what's right. 
As, you, as we break out of COVID and we move forward, you do what's right. You say, okay, I'm going to get back to where we're assembling the way we're supposed to be assembling. And when you come, even if you see somebody who is totally comes and sits and they go to sleep and they're zoned out and we say, hey, wait, wake up, Pastor Art. Wake up. Okay. Where did he go? Oh, I, man, I missed a jab and he wasn't even there for it. Okay. Even, even if it's somebody you look at and say, hey, they don't get any, they, they aren't really involved. You be involved. You sing, you worship, you pray, you follow along. You get involved with it. Even if others reject your witness, even if others don't want you to grow in the Lord, you do what's right no matter what others say, what they tell you to do, what they tell you not to do. You serve the Lord. Young person, let me encourage you more than anybody else. Don't let peer pressure take you away from Jesus Christ. You follow and serve the Lord and let God use you and bless you And you just do what's right, no matter what other people do or don't do. You follow Jesus Christ. Then you're going to be one of those wiser people. One of those individuals, there is so much we could be talking about, and we have a whole another section to be talking about, but we'll hang on for next week and look at it. But let me just wrap up with this thought. You're going to be a modern, wise person. Which one of these are you going to have to work at this week? Which one of these several are you going to have to work at? If you're going to be a wise person this morning, then do this. Then being that wise person, then take time, evaluate, and say, this is something I can do. And give it more thought than what you're doing right now in these 30 seconds. Go home, think it over. What are you going to do in 2021? How are you going to become wiser? Jesus Christ is worth every bit of your effort to become a wiser person in this next year. Why is that? Because Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Savior. Jesus Christ has promised us so very, very, very much.